This episode of Yap is sponsored by Video Husky, a video editing subscription that provides you with unlimited video editing for a flat monthly fee. I use Video Husky to edit all my videos, including this one if you're watching on YouTube. Your videos have a one to two day turnaround and you get your own dedicated video editor and project manager. This is so much more affordable than any other video editing service or freelancer that I've used in the past. And the video editors are so talented. They can do your thumbnails, animated transitions, transcriptions, and more. If you're looking for an affordable video editing service to take your marketing to the next level, head over to cart.videohusky.com slash youngandprofiting and get 30% off your first month. That's cart.videohusky.com slash youngandprofiting. I'll stick the link in our show notes. You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests, people who are much smarter than me on their given topic by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. Today, we're chatting with Eric Edmides. Eric is a serial entrepreneur who has owned businesses focused on mobile networking, wireless networking, and Hollywood special effects, working on blockbuster movies like Avatar, Iron Man, and Pirates of the Caribbean, to name a few. Eric is most notably known for being a pioneer in the food revolution as the founder of Wild Fit, a fast-growing nutritional coaching company exclusively offered by Mind Valley. Eric is also a very experienced public speaker who has logged over 10,000 hours on stage. In this episode, we'll uncover Eric's perspective on nutrition, like what we should and shouldn't eat. We'll start to understand the psychology behind our food cravings, and we'll get an insight from his time spent with the Bushman tribe in Africa, who lives similarly to those from the Stone Age. And as a bonus, we'll also learn his amazing tips to tell better stories and prepare for our speaking engagements. Please keep in mind that Eric was on the road when we recorded this interview, and so understand that this episode has unusually poor audio quality, but the content was so good, I just had to put it out regardless. Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Eric. So I want to know, why have you changed your career so many times? Do you get bored easily? Um, Do you believe in constant transformation? What's the reasoning for you changing your career so often? Uh, You know, I I don't know if it's so much boredom as curiosity. You know, once something has satisfied me, my curiosity, maybe we can call it boredom. But then, you know, the next thing comes along. Like when I sold my first business, I'd been in that industry for 15 years and um, I and, and at that point I was done. Like I was, I, I just didn't want to do that anymore. And so for me, it's really like what you know. I'll tell you. When I was a kid, I remember reading a biography of Winston Churchill, and I was so blown away by the fullness of his life. Never mind prime minister and World War II, but when he was a reporter, he was covering the Boer War in South Africa, and he was captured and had to escape from prison. And I thought, man, you know, the the days of truly rich living are over. Like we don't; those lives are long gone. Mm-hmm. And I think somewhere along the line, I aspiring to live a life as full as that kind of drove me to take on a bunch of adventures and live a life of variety. Yeah. So tell us about all the different businesses that you've owned over your life, like just so everybody could understand the breadth of experiences that you have. Wow. Okay. So I left high school and was not able to go to university. So immediately I went into sales. I was offered a job in a sales organization and worked there for two or three years, learning human nature ultimately. And when you work in sales and And then one day I was offered a job to work for a small tech startup in Vancouver, Canada. And uh, it was literally one guy in his bedroom. You know, I think he just moved into his first office and my dad introduced me to him and I went to go work for him. And I worked for him for six or seven years in the mobile tech world. We were selling mobile computing and inventory management stuff. And, you know, as happens quite often, uh, founders make certain promises around equity and that kind of stuff that they apparently later don't want to honor. And so that led to a, a, a sort of disagreement with that situation. And I ended up leaving and starting my own business, which I did in England. We were in a very in the same industry. We did things a little bit differently. We did focus a lot on repair. And but again, mobile computing, logistics management, uh, that sort of stuff. Our clients were people like, you know, United Airlines and Debenhams in the UK, JD Sports, like big retail companies and logistics yeah. companies. And then I did get bored. I got bored about six years into that business. But luckily, the business was 
standalone. It didn't need me anymore. So it was okay for me to be bored. And that's when I got into business mentoring. Because my business didn't need me anymore, I took my spare time to help young entrepreneurs through the Prince's Trust in the United Kingdom get their businesses started. And a couple of years later, I ended up selling my business. And then I really, I just took two years off traveling around the world, lecturing on business, having fun. Then I was offered uh, an opportunity to basically visit a movie studio in Northern California uh, on a bit of a tour. And one thing led to another on this tour. And the next thing you know, I ended up buying it. And, and this studio was originally part of Lucasfilm. It was the original model shop of Industrial Light and Magic. So immediately here I am like semi-retired from my one business. And all of a sudden I'm like working on Avatar and Pirates of the Caribbean. And it was super, super fascinating time in my life. We started a couple of other businesses at that time, making 3D camera engineering equipment and uh, military research and development and medical simulation and that sort of stuff. And then I, I reached a point in my life where I realized that as, as much as I did enjoy each of those projects, I really, I valued freedom a lot more. And I, I really didn't want to be tied to an office or tied to brick and mortar business anymore. And I, and, and I went back to my original goal as a child. And when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I really thought that I'd want to be a teacher. And then I found out, and I don't know what it's like in every country around the world, but I then found out in Canada, at least, we don't really seem to pay our teachers what's fair relative to the importance of their job. And I didn't become a teacher on that basis, but I was now given the opportunity to do that. And, um, and so I teach. That's awesome. You, you definitely have an amazing range of experience. And um, I really want to focus this interview on your nutritional content as well as your public speaking expertise. We do a ton of research here at Young and Profiting Podcast. And I found out that as a kid, you were actually a very sick kid. You had throat infections and sinus infections, and you went from doctor to doctor, and you were on drugs, and they were almost going to operate on you, but you know, you discovered something about food that really helped to shape your career later on in life. So can you talk about how you were as a child in terms of your health and how food helped you improve your, your health overall? Yeah. So I, it's funny at that age, you know, when you're sick, continuously, you don't really think of yourself as sick, you know? Um, so I didn't think of myself as sick. I just was that kid who always had allergies or always had digestive problems or, you know, my parents obviously took a different view and they were sending me to this doctor and this specialist and what have you, and, you know, being prescribed all kinds of different drugs. And, and as you say, eventually at about 21, I had a doctor take a look at my throat and say, Oh my God, we have to take your tonsils out. And, you know, one thing, kind of led to another as I shared this with a few of my friends and you know I listened and 30 days I, I figured a 30-day experiment I mean what could go wrong and after two weeks into this experiment where I just cleaned up my eating it's not like I was particularly bad with food I just wasn't that good with it and then uh, within two weeks suddenly I, I was able to breathe through my sinuses the throat infections were gone but the doctor's office called me to try to you know confirm the surgery and I canceled it and they were like why would you cancel it well because the problem's you know, gone. No, no. The pro you know, sometimes what happens is that it feels better for a while, but then it'll just come back. And I said, no, 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 it's gone. And you know, what really disturbed me even at that point was why they didn't ask me how I did it. Mm. You know, they were yeah. even curious about how I handled it. And so that, that began my journey with food and, and recognizing, and, oh, you know, what really began it, I'll tell you what blew me away is asking a doctor one day, how long, you know, it, it, it took to become a doctor, like how long they went to medical school and, you know, Generally, minimally, it's about six years. And then I asked the follow-up question of how much of that time did you spend studying food and nutrition? And what shocked me to my core and still disturbs me deeply is that somebody can become a medical doctor and not study food at all. Yeah. And that's when I decided I, I, I wanted to study food. Yeah, that's so interesting. And so you put that on the back burner for quite some time, but then you ended up going to spend time with the Bushmen in Africa, from my understanding. And can you just tell us how you ended up visiting a tribe in Africa and studying them and researching them? Was it on purpose or was this planned and you kind of knew what you were looking after when, when you went to spend time with them? It was really a matter of a confluence of coincidences and events. So my, you know, growing up, I went through this thing and suddenly I became really curious about food and that kind of stuff. And at the same time, my father's grandfather had discovered the oldest homo sapiens skull many, obviously, you know, many years before, but it was kind of in my family, this interest in human history and anthropology and that kind of stuff. And 
I, so I had all these like diverse curiosities and I didn't realize they were going to be related to each other. At that time, I'd also become really fascinated by peak performance and how to create behavioral change in people. And again, these were just separate curiosities of mine. Mm-hmm. And then um, somewhere along the line, I started marrying them together and really wanting to study them much more deeply. And at this stage, I was running leadership programs, dealing with behavioral change and that kind of stuff, taking people up Kilimanjaro. So my leadership program was a two-week program, and one week of it involved climbing to the top of Kilimanjaro, which is a little bit more of an intensive workshop exercise than breaking boards or walking on fire. Yeah. And, uh, and so coming down the mountain one day, the logistics team that I was working with, the, the guy who owned the company, he said to me, and he Googled me or something, and he's like, wow, you're, you're, you know, you're really interested, interested in this sort of human history, social anthropology, blah, blah, blah. Would you like to visit with some Bushmen? Mm. And I was like, what? That, that's even possible? Like, it, it, it wasn't even. And so he said, yeah, I think I know where we can find Tom. We can try and go meet with them. And, and so we loaded up some four by fours and went crashing through the bush and machetes and, and no luck, no luck, no luck. And then all of a sudden, he'd heard through somebody else that we could get up to Lake Iasi in East Africa, in, in, in Tanzania. And, uh, and that the, the Hadza people lived in that area and, and there was a tribe that we might be able to find. And okay. that's what happened the very first time. And I've been back visiting them now for over 10 years. That's amazing. And for my listeners who want more context into who the Bushmen are, they literally live as if they're in the Stone Age. They make fire by rubbing sticks together. They're nomadic. They follow the water and, the, and, and things like that. So very primitive tribe that Eric spent a lot of time with studying. Um, so what were the top nutritional insights that you found from spending time with the Bushmen? You know, it's not so much that I found a lot of nutritional insights from them, but rather observing them confirm theories or or underpin studies and that kind of stuff. So, you know, here's an example. Humans are, particularly men, if I can say this, are somewhat lazy. And, and, you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but a man can come home from work, turn on the TV and just sit down, where a woman comes home from work, turns on the TV and then does stuff. You know, yeah. it's like there's, there's a difference. And and um, I, I know these are huge stereotypes. I'm sure I'm going to get people on Instagram going, don't stereotype men and women, but <laughs> these are just my observations. And, uh, but in any event, what I noticed there is that it's not so much that the men are lazy, it's that they're incredibly efficient. And I think that when you recognize that food used to be incredibly rare and difficult to get, it required a significant amount of energy to go get it. So, you, you know, you were conserving energy in order to go and hunt and gather, which took a huge amount of energy. One day I was out about three years ago, I was out with the Hadza and the chief came to me. I was there for a whole week. I was living with him. I didn't bring food. I brought water because I'm not stupid. They, you know, I don't know how we like, I couldn't live on their amount of water, but I didn't take food. I wanted to be immersed with them. And on the very first day he came to me and said, do you want to go hunting? And of course I said, yes, I'd been hunting with them before, but I'd never been out all day. And no kidding. I tracked our hunt. And we did 27 miles that day. Wow. Full marathon. No training for this. And it's not running track miles. It's thorn trees and cliffs and rocks. And it wasn't even all that successful at a hunting trip. And the next day, we wake up in the morning. Every bone in my body hurts. And the chief comes up to me and he goes, you know, are you ready to go again? And, of course, this is, again, where I'm going to have to stereotype a little bit. I swear if I was a woman, I'd have said no because women are smart. I'm a man. My ego goes, of course I'm going to go again. <laughs> so off we go. And, uh. And we did another 17 miles the very next day. Wow. And so one of the things that it really showed me is, is that our life today is so physically easy that we are underutilizing our bodies. Mm. And, and that's dangerous. If you're not out there doing your seven, eight, ten thousand 10,000 steps a day, you're underutilizing your body. If you don't use it, you'll, you'll lose it. And we know that. But to see it live in action there was, yeah. was phenomenal. And yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, definitely some great stuff around food, around what they eat and the, and the seasonality of what they eat. Because of course, when fruit's in season, it's in season. When it's not, it's gone. Yeah. Of course, for us, we can go buy a mango pretty much any day of the week at a grocery store. Yeah. You, you're the founder of WildFed, right? It's a 90-day nutritional program. It's, spot, it's backed by Mind Valley. Um, lots of people swear by, by what you do. And essentially, could you just explain what WildFed is? Like, what is the premises behind it? So WildFed is... is effectively a uh, health and fitness coaching company and the wild fit 90 program you're talking about is our flagship program and what that program is is a 
marriage between really solid, let's call it nutritional anthropology or an evolutionary view on food, so solid nutritional education, and where we really differentiate behavioral change, behavioral change psychology. So these days, there's many, there are many, many good people out there sharing great information about nutrition, but the average person can't follow it. They, yeah. they don't have the willpower and they don't understand the manipulative food marketing practices and the food ingredients practices that are aimed at taking away their freedom. What we do that's different, that differentiates us from, quote, the diet industry is that we change people's psychology on food. People will ultimately eat what they want to eat. So we want to educate them as to what that might be. But then what we have to do is often break childhood linkages, change psychological connections, undo the hypnosis that the food industry has been doing. So our clients a year later are still on track. Yeah. And, and that's very different from the industry. As you said, Mindvalley is our publisher and they publish some incredible authors. And I'm in very good company on the Mindvalley platform. They're doing incredible work. And I, I, I just now was in L.A. where WildFit now for the second year in a row has won the highest rated program award on Mindvalley, which is the customer service rating of clients coming out the back end. You know, I'm proud of that, but I, but I also need to observe something. And that is that our program is 90 days and where most other programs are only 30 days. So the longer your program, the harder it is to maintain good customer feedback because people yeah. don't stick with stuff. But also, it's food, which typically doesn't get high ratings in education platforms because people buy books and don't read them or sign up for programs and don't do them. Yeah. Where we've differentiated is we have an 85% completion rate and a 85 to 90% success rate, which is just not consistent with the diet industry. Yeah, very cool. So let me pick your brain on food and food choices. So from my understanding, you don't eat any sugar or dairy or even carbs or caffeine or alcohol. If I remember correctly, <laughs> it's absolutely not like that. Wild Fit is about freedom. It is absolutely about freedom. And so that means that our clients are conditioned, they're educated and conditioned to get to a place where they are absolutely free to eat what they want, when they want, as much as they want, anytime they want. Mm-hmm. That's the, the goal of it. Now, what we want to work with is what the want is, because the other thing they need to be free to do is to not eat what they wish they wouldn't eat when they didn't really want to eat it. Mm. And that's something most people can't do. They walk into a room and they go, oh, look, donuts. And, and they got the little angel on one side going, you don't want to eat that. It's going to make you feel awful. Yeah. So me. And, and what we do is get rid of that. Okay. So, so if, if that's really, so, so when you say I don't eat sugar, that's not true. I, I, first of all, sugar is, the English language is complicated because we use one word to describe a million things. So sugar, yeah. is sugar good or bad? Yes. There are terrible sugars and there are good yeah. sugars. Yeah. Is sugar good every day? No. Mm-hmm. So do I eat sugar? Of course I do. Do I eat like processed, refined, garbage, bleached crap sugar? No. I mean, I can't say it never makes its way into me because it's hidden in a million things. Yeah. But I certainly make a concerted effort to do it. Yeah. I, I choose not really to eat dairy products I, for a number of reasons. I occasionally have ghee or, or, or butter, but, but, but it's rare. I certainly don't drink milk or cheese and that kind of stuff. But these are choices that we help our clients to make, not things that we dictate to them. Yeah, totally, totally. So let's let's stick on sugar for, for a little bit. Could you help us understand why we're so hardwired to enjoy sugar so much? It's a very, uh, you know, evolution it just can explain this for us beautifully. One of our theories at WildFit is that the things that we've developed cravings for are things that were nutritionally important and rare. So if it was nutritionally important and not rare, no need for a craving because hunger itself would drive you to go and get some. But if it was nutritionally important and rare or required effort, then you'd have a craving. And so we have a craving for fat because it's nutritionally important and it requires effort to go get it. Yeah. Sugar is very much the same way. Speaking of the Hadza Bushmen, when you're out with them, sugar, you, you'll see there's very little sugar in nature. It's incredibly hard to find. There is uh, There are berries that ripen occasionally, but they're not the these genetically modified bread fruits that we have today, a sour plum is, is a, a great sized piece of fruit, but the pit inside, well, the pit inside is 70, 80% of the fruit. So there's only a little bit of flesh around the outside. So there's a very tiny amount of fruit, sugar per piece of fruit. And mm-hmm. the fruit is only on that tree for a week. So there's this one week where they can get quite a lot of sugar in and then they can't. And so they have the craving that says when it's available, we bet get some. It's full of vitamin C. And so we've got to go get some when it's available. And then when it's gone, we lament it. We're probably a little depressed. Same thing with honey. 
honey in Africa is incredibly hard to find. The yeah. bees in Africa are smart. They hide themselves inside things. The bees in the rest of the world are arrogant. They're like, I'll just put my hive right here where you can. <laughs> but in Africa, because they've had humans for so long, they, they bury the hive like, and so they're hard to find. You can only find it because there's this tiny little wax chimney. And if you can see that little wax chimney on the tree, then you know there's honey inside. So again, it's incredibly rare and yet important. And so we have a craving for it. And there's one more mechanism that's the reason that people are in so much trouble. Yeah. When you eat fruit, sugar, you know, you get this sugar spike and then you start producing insulin and the insulin then breaks down the sugar. And what you're left with often at the end of that is a little surplus insulin and, and your blood sugars come down. And that insulin is kind of, we'll call it insulin shock. And that, in that moment, you have this craving for sugar. That's mm. why somebody can like, oh, I'll just have one. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, they're going to have one and then the body's going to, and the reason for that, imagine that you and I are walking along hundred thousand years ago in the bush in Africa and we see some fruit on the tree. We grab some, we eat it, we walk away and then we have this weird sugar craving again. So we walk back and eat some more. Well, if there are fruits on the trees, what that can tell us is the next season that's coming is winter, which is drought, which means we better load up and fatten up as best we can right now. And so that, that little craving is designed to prepare us for the drought that's coming, prepare us for the winter mm. that's coming. If we didn't have that craving, we wouldn't survive. Yeah. The problem is that mechanism today is lethal. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn, because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They are in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get a $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, totally. And we have such a, an addiction to sugar, especially Americans. I read a stat that like Americans consume like 54 pounds to 150 pounds of sugar per year. And it's just increasing and increasing. And like 1915, it was like 17 pounds of sugar per year. And we went so far away from that number. And it's very scary. I think that a lot of companies really put sugar in things where it really doesn't belong. And we're addicted to it. And a lot of people don't even know that they're addicted to sugar. It's um, true. And, and part of it is, is that it's so insidious. It's so hidden in things that people are eating sugar. Like I've shared that statistically. Matter of fact, I went to, I, I told my wife one day, the average American is eating 154 pounds of sugar. This is like four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. I told her this when I first saw that study. She's like, no, no, that can't be right. That can't. And then I told her, and obesity is apparently seven times more dangerous than smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. And she's like, no, if those things were true, they'd be all over the news. And no kidding, about a week later, we're at this event and I'm, I'm speaking at the event and I'm speaking after President Bill Clinton and he's on the stage and then he does some Q&A and a woman in the audience says, you know, Mr. President, what do you think the biggest dangers are? This is actually in London, England. And this woman says, mm -hmm. sure, what do you think the biggest dangers are facing us in the world today? And he stops and he goes, well, sugar. I read the other day that the average American eats 154 pounds of sugar every year. And my wife's like, did you hear that? <laughs> and, and, and obesity is seven times more dangerous than smoking a pack. It's like right out of, and she's like, oh, now it's true. Now that Bell said it, you know. That's so funny. 
Yeah. And like lots of diseases like diabetes are all because of our sugar problem, something that we definitely need to get under control. So we have a question from the audience. Natish is wondering if there's any replacement for sugar. Well, it's funny, you know, whenever we want to replace something, we have to ask why it is that we want to replace it. And what I mean by that is when what you're trying to replace is probably you think it's the taste, but it's probably also the emotion, right? A lot of times what's going on is that you fell down, you skinned your knee, you were crying, your parents gave you a chocolate chip cookie that distracted you from the pain, you felt love. And then at 40 years old, you can want a chocolate chip cookie when you're feeling lonely. Yeah. And so a lot of times our desire to replace uh, sugar really is um, a, a, an attempt to achieve an emotional state. What I would suggest is that um, it's not it's not so much that we want to replace sugar, it's that we want to choose really two principles when it comes to sugar. Well, maybe three. Reduction, heavy, heavy reduction, and quality, like what kind of sugar are you eating? If you're eating like unrefined cane sugar from time to time, honey, like good quality honey, you know, not this garbage honey syrup stuff that we, that a lot of people are eating is honey. But if you're eating good quality sugar, then that's a great step in the right direction. But then here's the other one. And this is the tough one for a lot of people is that it, it really isn't meant to be seasonal. Sugar is not something that your body is designed to process every single day. Your mm. pancreas is a dual, minimally a dual function organ. It has a sugar function and a non-sugar function. And if you only ever run it in sugar mode, you're asking for pancreatic problems, right? Potentially things like diabetes and so on. So I'm not so big on the idea of looking for replacements is rather saying, if I'm going to eat sugar, I want to eat the best quality that I can, the kind that my body has an evolved relationship with, say, fresh fruit, honey, that kind of stuff. And then I want to eat it occasionally and not with any regularity. Yeah, that's great advice and, and super interesting. So let's switch gears to meat. Meat is one of those things where there's lots of argument on whether meat is good or bad. From my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, you used to be a vegetarian, used to not eat meat, and then now you do eat meat, right? So could you help us understand like how, like, what changed your mind in terms of, of meat? This is a tough topic because it's now at the point of being um, political. Let me start with this. There's a lot of food science out there, studies and research and all this kind of stuff. But food science is an incredibly difficult science because in a really good scientific experiment, you only ever change one variable and you control everything else. So when you do a big study of food, that's just not really possible. Like if you want to, you know, want to test like, is coffee good or bad? You can't find a whole bunch of people that are living exactly the same and then have some have coffee and have some not have coffee. That would be the only way to really, really do the study. So it's really mm -hmm. difficult to rely on studies, particularly because most studies are funded by people with agendas, the food industry itself. Yeah. So, for example, the Beef Growers Association is absolutely been working to overstate the requirement for protein to drive meat eating. There's no question they've done that. Yeah. But then, you know, PETA and the vegan movement have absolutely done manipulative things with studies to convince people in another direction. And so my rule for food science works like this. Read the study, be intrigued by it, measure it against evolutionary biology, and if it conflicts with evolutionary biology, question it seriously, if not disregard it. That's what happened to me with meat. Yeah. I was, I'm a recovering vegan. I, I was convinced by the arguments. I was convinced by silly, logical, fallacy-based arguments. Like if you put an apple and a bunny with your baby on the floor, I'll bet you a million dollars that the baby will eat the apple and play with the bunny. I mean, this is a ridiculous, emotive argument. But at 21 years old, 22 years old, I was impressionable by such, I was impressioned by such things. What basically happened for, for me was my research, one thing I've been really clear about with this journey that I've been on with food is I'm not interested in being right. I'm interested in knowing the truth. And so that means that I've had theories that I've held really strongly at some point in time. But when the research has come along, I've absolutely been willing to change my position. And that's really scary when you're a vegan, because if you are a vegan and you change your position, which by the way, 85% of vegans will do, 85% yeah. will attend vegan and stop. And there's reasons for that. But the, the challenge is when you change your mind from the vegan world, you face a, a pretty serious backlash. I, you know, I was hearing yesterday that Cafe Gratitude here in Los Angeles decided they wanted to try and serve some eggs from time to time. They're a vegan place. And there was protests, like protests. Mm. So when you change your mind in this world, it can be pretty dangerous, uh, you know, from a PR perspective. But in my case, what happened was very simple. My research was about finding the truth, and the more I dug into human history, the more it became absolutely clear to me that our ancestors have always 
have, have pretty, for all intents and purposes, always eaten meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's never been a successful society of vegetarians ever in the history of Earth. There's a bit of an experiment going on in India right now, and it's not going very well. And so I, 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 that disturbed me. And then at the same time, I, I was researching other primates, and I found out something crazy, and that is that both chimpanzees and bonobos, and by the way, they're incredibly close related, except we're more genetically related to the one than the other one is. Like, mm. we are more of a chimpanzee than the bonobos. So when I found out that they are incredible meat eaters, they are very good hunters, yeah. it made me start questioning some stuff. And then I had a personal experience. I was training for the London Marathon. And I was running like three 18-mile runs a week in prep for the marathon. And I was waking up in the night salivating, having mm. dreams about meat. I hadn't had it in years. The research, this one thing led to another, and I just realized I was on the wrong path. Yeah. And I've, I've even heard that not eating meat can cause you to become a- aggressive, right? Is that true? You know, it, it's a little thing that I <laughs> I don't like mentioning <laughs> it so often. Frankly, I, I know I know what will happen to me on Twitter and all that stuff afterwards. <laughs> vitamin B12 is probably the most propagandized and lied about vitamin there is. But vitamin B12, like humans make their own vitamin B12, but apparently we make it so far back in the hind gut that we can't, we don't get access to our own B12. So, you know, that's why we get our B12 from animals. And that's where, uh, you know, B12 comes from. Yes, the vegan movement's going to tell you, no, no, you get your B12 because when you pull a carrot out of the ground, it's full of soil and you eat it. Okay, do you know what soil is? Rotting feces and flesh. So it's hardly vegan. So in any event, one of the symptoms of B12 deficiency, and, and this is difficult because it's not just simply a matter of, oh, well, I've got my B12 supplement over here. There's some issues around the digestibility and the availability and the source with which the B12 came with. But B12 deficiency, one of the symptoms is aggression. Mm. And I find that ironic because I suspect that it's an evolutionary trait designed to make sure you get your fair share at the kill. So, yeah. you know, in, I've been out with the Bushmen. I know what happens. If we kill something small, they cook it and eat in the bush. They don't bring meat back to camp. But when we kill something big, we bring it back to camp. And I'll tell you what, the women are ready. And I think it's the ones that have a little extra aggression to get that piece. And so in the weirdest twist of irony, the emotive and nearly violent veganista is, may well be suffering with B12 deficiency, which is designed to help them get their share at the table. Uh, but it's going the other way. Yeah, that, I mean, that's so fascinating. And who knows, you know, what what's right or wrong in terms of eating meat. How about uh, meat substitutes? Things like Beyond Meat are really picking up steam right now. My boyfriend's a vegetarian, so I've learned how to cook everything with Beyond Meat. It's, it's okay, but sometimes I feel like, what am I even eating? <laughs> what's your perspective in terms of uh, meat substitutes? You know, I, I think that um, one of the, again, one of the things you have to ask yourself is, why do we need to substitute it? I mean, if you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. Don't eat substitutes. Why, why would you need to do that? Right? Like if vegetarianism and veganism was the healthiest path for humans, why would we even have a craving for or desire for vegetarian sausage or fake meat or, you know, these kinds of things? So that's one question, which is provocative, but it's, it's a valid question. But the other thing is, is that most of the meat substitutes are heavily processed other foods that we're really not supposed to be eating a great deal of. Yeah. And, and so I'm not a big fan. You know, if somebody wants to become a vegetarian, and incidentally, generally when somebody calls themselves a vegetarian, it means that they're not eating meat and fish, but they are drinking milk or eating cheese. And to me, that's like the biggest contradiction in the world. If you're going to be a vegetarian for animal rights reasons, you got to be a vegan. You can't, you can't, milk has got to be the like most inhumane thing that we do to animals anywhere on the planet. Mm. Um, and of course, there are health reasons for not having milk as well. So I'm not a big fan of like meat substitutes per se. That said, if somebody's going to make the choice to become a, a vegetarian or especially a vegan, they're definitely going to have to give some thought to getting the right amino acids in their life because yeah. there's no plant in the world that has them all. And so they're going to have to really think a lot about how to get that done and to get those supplements. Even the Vegetarian Society of America says, if you choose to become a vegetarian, there are supplements you're going to have to take. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's stick on dairy for a little bit. A lot of people are lactose intolerant, right? And similarly with bread and things like that, gluten intolerant. Can you talk about this trend? And are we like, let's say for me, I have no trouble, you know, eating milk and things like that, but I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad. Does that mean that I just have a free pass to eat as, drink as much milk as I want because I don't get sick from it? Or is it does not work like that? 
Okay, uh, here's my opinion for what it's worth. Lactose intolerance, but what that basically is the result of is that milk, you know, lactose is the milk sugar. And so people who are lactose intolerant are no longer able to make lactase, which is the digestive enzyme that breaks down lactose. And most mammals stop producing lactase when they're weaned, roughly when their teeth are coming in or when they're weaned and they're no longer drinking milk from their mother, they stop producing lactase. Then they don't go back to drinking milk. Obviously, they stop producing lactase because there was no need. I actually believe that everybody is lactose intolerant. They just have to wait until the, the lactase clock turns off. And for some people, particularly northern people of northern European genetics, they are the largest genetic segment that has an extension on this lactase clock. In other words, less of them are lactose intolerant than anybody. And that's because they've had milk for longer than anybody else. They've had milk mm. for about 8,000 years or 7,000 years or something. The issue about whether, you know, lactose intolerance or not indicates whether milk is good for you or not is irrelevant. All that is, is one, one step in the process of processing milk. So if you are lactose intolerant, I think you're lucky because it's like you have an alarm system and your body's going, dude, what are you doing? Don't put that in me. I am not a cow. I am not planning to grow a thousand pounds in my first year. I don't, don't have four stomachs. Please don't put this in me. And your body reacts. And don't do this. If you are not lactose intolerant, it's like they've turned the alarm off and you can just keep putting the stuff in. Mm. And then I believe that that's going to create consequence. And the consequences are arranged from the immediate, which is the lactose intolerant potential pain, to the intermediate, like skin problems, sinus infections, ear infections, and that kind of stuff, which are very common for people who are taking in a lot of dairy products and almost always go away when people stop having dairy products. And then the more long-term issues like Harvard Nurses School did a study that showed that one glass of milk a day or equivalent in excess to dairy products would result in a 300% increase in the likelihood of developing prostate ovarian cancer. Another study was just published two weeks ago, I saw in Canadian press that said something very similar around breast cancer, that the long-term impact of having milk over, over years is, is bad. And then again, let's come back to evolutionary science. We've never done that. It's, yeah. it's, the newest, it's one of the newest things in our behavior our ancestors were not walking up underneath the wildebeest and, you know, trying to milk it. Yeah. So let's talk about um, diets, you know, one size fits all diets compared to personalized diets. Do you feel that we need to personalize our diets in any way or is that not necessary? So I think that, yes, there can be a degree of personalization once you've handled your core diet. The fad um, at the moment of doing personalized diets is incredibly good marketing. I mean, I'm a marketer. I'm a business guy. It's, I, I know I understand marketing. And it is a lot easier if I come along and say, uh, you know, oh, uh, like if you walked into a bookstore and you saw a thing that said, you know, the Hala diet, you'd be like, oh, my God, <laughs> it's the diet for me. And you'd buy that book in five seconds. Another way to put this is let's say you have a dog and you want to buy a, dog, a, a training book on dogs and you happen to have do you have a dog? Yes. What kind of dog do you have? A Maltese. You have a Maltese. So you walk into the store and you see this book and it says how to train your dog in you know 30 days or whatever. But then you walk a little further and you see a thing that says how to train your Maltese. Mm. You're going to buy that. Now, I'll tell you something. I know an author that did this. They have all these dogs on how to train your husky, how to train your Maltese, how to train. Fabulous marketing. But you know what's crazy? 90% of the book is the same no matter what the species. And then there are slight modifications. For example, if you have a Siberian Husky, you just can't train them to walk off the leash. Can't be done. So there's a, a chapter. There's, that's how I view this question with diet. 90% of it is the same. We are all sapiens. There's not a single vitamin, nutrient. There's not a single nutritional constituent that you need, that I don't also need, that everybody here in Salt Lake City needs, that everybody in Los Angeles or Mumbai, there's not one. We yeah. all need them. And so that's the core start is getting your core sapiens nutrition correct. And then there may be some personalizations, but frankly, in my opinion, most of the personalizations are related to food sensitivities. And you'll notice most of those things are dairy, sugar, grain, you know, mm -hmm. so for the most part, the personalization comes down to things like male, female are somewhat different and physical activity are somewhat different. And speeds of metabolism can be different, but that's often an epigenetic response to the way you're eating anyway. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, such great insight there. So from my understanding, not all hunger is created equal, right? There's many different types of hunger that we have. 
And oftentimes it's our mind playing tricks on us and we're actually not really hungry or not uh, physically in need of nutrients. So can you talk to us about the different types of hunger that we have? Sure. And I'll go one step further. I'll actually publish an infographic on my Instagram account later today so they can actually see what I'm about to describe. Awesome. In WildFit, we have a thing called the six hungers. And the purpose behind the six hungers is to recognize what is driving your eating decision. So when we look at the six hungers, I won't go through them all right now because it would take us a little while, but I'll give you some examples and then you can go find the infographic and the explanation. The, here's an example. First of all, there's only one true hunger and that's, that's proper nutritional hungry, hunger. That's where your body says, wow, I'm low on this, I'm low on that, I'm low on, on, on fat, I'm low on this. The trouble with that hunger is, is that it generates a non-specific desire to eat. It doesn't necessarily tell you go eat this thing. And the reason for that is that our ancestors didn't have those choices. They didn't have whole foods. They didn't have grocery stores. So when they needed a nutritional constituent, they just basically got this message that said, go eat some stuff because hopefully you'll get it through the course of your seasonal rotation. Mm. That's the only core hunger. And the trouble is, is that most Americans and most, look, we beat up on Americans a lot, but let's be clear. American food patterns are spreading around the world. Now that Britain has left the EU, they're going to be totally subjected to, eat to, to American food regulations. This is going to be consistent everywhere. And so one of the things that what, that's happening with us here is that as we are eating according to food regulations and the food manufacturing industry, the fact is most of us, not just Americans that are in the Western world, are actually nutritionally hungry every day. Mm. So even though we overeat, even though we eat more calories than we need, most of us are missing major nutrients on a day-by-day basis. So we have a constant and pervasive feeling of hunger. Wow. One of the reasons we overeat. Another form of hunger in the six hungers is thirst, which sounds weird, right? What, what do you mean thirst? That's not hunger, except that a huge amount of the water that our ancestors used to ingest came from the food they ate. Mm. They didn't have pottery. They didn't have their fancy gym water bottle, right? So, no. you know, they, they, they drank water when it was available after the rains. They'd find puddles and rivers and whatever. But, but a lot of the time, the water they're getting was from the plant foods they're eating. And so when we get dehydrated, our body sends a signal, and that signal is, eat because mm. we used to get water that way of course today people go eat a bag of potato chips which of course takes water out of them and then makes them more dehydrated which sends another signal eat and so yeah. one of the things that's really important in appetite control is making sure you're well hydrated and i'll the third one we'll do and the rest they can get i'll, I'll publish it so everybody's got it but the third one is emotional hunger and okay. this is the one that's devastating it's devastating because our parents and our teachers and our school and our governments didn't really understand what they were doing when they were raising us around what they were teaching us around food. So mm-hmm. they did very many of the things backwards and created food addictions in us that then the food industry played upon. Here's a great example. I saw this great commercial. I mean, I, I didn't know it was a commercial, but it was the most beautiful collection of CCTV footage of random acts of kindness. An awesome viral video. Mm-hmm. That, you know, people like this. One woman goes to the bank machine and she drops her wallet and the young man behind her, as she walks away, picks up her wallet, runs down the street and gives it to her. Little old lady crossing the street in the middle of a snowstorm somewhere in the Ukraine and two young men come along and they stop the traffic for her and take each hand and walk her across the street. And, you know, you're watching this video going, oh, I love people. Oh, I just love people. People are so amazing. Boom, Coca-Cola. Open happy. <laughs> and you wonder why it is. I can't stand, I, I, frankly, if I was into banning stuff, I'm into personal liberty. So if you want to drink Coke, that's up to you. I think we should tax the hell out of it. But if I was into banning stuff, Coca-Cola would be like top of my list. You know what's really crazy though? The advertising is so effective. I was such a Coke fan as a kid that even to this day, when I see somebody drinking Pepsi, I'm like, shouldn't you be drinking Coke? That's how effective <laughs> the advertising is. And so the emotional hunger is something we really have to learn to cope with and and learn to create consciousness about because there are linkages and rules that we made as a child and we're still following them. And that's why we have a major diabetes explosion, a major obesity explosion, a major cancer explosion. And emotional hunger is a big, big part of that. Hey, Yap Bam. Starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
Whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. And that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you want to start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Yeah. So you sort of touched on it. Let's talk about some of the incorrect information that's out there. So for example, the food pyramid. What's your thoughts on the food pyramid and how would you redesign it if you had your way? Well, it's actually really easy. The woman who originally designed the food pyramid um, designed a very good food pyramid. And uh, then she went away and then she came back. I'm going to have to reread about this. I feel like it was in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, she um, she came back and they explained, the government, you know, explained to her, well, we've made a few adjustments to your food pyramid because we felt like we didn't want to just rely on your one opinion. We wanted to get some opinions from the industry, which means mm. the dairy management company. It means the grain growers and the beef growers. Like, so basically they went out and they took her pyramid and turned it upside down. They just, they flipped it. And she said to them at that point, if you flip that like that, Within 30, 40 years, you're going to have a diabetes. Well, she didn't. Mark Hyman came up with the term diabetes, but a diabetes and obesity epidemic, right? She basically said, you're going to have a diabetes epidemic within 30, 40, 50 years. And guess what we have? And wow. so, you know, where, where I'm at right now is not a mystery what we've eaten for most of our history. Not a mystery at all. But it's being turned into a mystery by profitability. It's being turned into a mystery by food companies that are far more interested in their bottom line and their profit than they are in the health of the individual people. And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that these companies are evil. I don't believe that Coca-Cola is inherently evil. I don't believe that McDonald's is inherently evil or Nestle is inherently evil. But I believe that their structure is designed around quarterly profitability reports and shareholders that are asking them to drive those numbers. And so as a consequence, they are manipulating people to eat more than they need to, to eat things they shouldn't be eating. And then they're putting addictive substances in those things to take away your sense of freedom about eating those things. Yeah. So we're in danger. Totally, totally. We're going to switch gears and talk about public speaking in a bit. I do want to ask one more question from the audience on diet, and that's from Aurora. She wants to know, what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting? I'm a big, big believer and fan of intermittent fasting as long as it's intermittent. And I don't mean, what I mean is I don't think that we need to control our structure eating that way all the time. Funny enough, I was with the Hadza Bushman about two weeks ago, and I, I, I just did my most recent visit with him. Quite an adventure, let me tell you. I had to have an emergency appendectomy in the middle of the trip. It was a scary, scary Oh, wow. <laughs> but I sat down and did some interviews uh, with the chief and one of the, one of the leading women in the, in the tribe. And one of the questions I asked him is, do members of the Hadza tribe ever not eat intentionally? Do they ever fast? Do they ever, you know, they don't have the word for fasting, but, you know, we got the point across. And he looked at me like I was insane. What? Why would anybody ever intentionally not eat? Now, remember, 
they live in, 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 in social anthropology, there's this really cool measurement called calories per acre. They mm-hmm. live with very few calories per acre, right? Where we, like, you know, the Maasai, they have cattle, so they live with hundreds of thousands of calories per acre, and then the farmers have millions of, and we live with billions of calories per app because we can just convert <laughs> ourselves some food immediately. Not them. So when I said to them, do you ever like intentionally not eat? Absolutely not. Not ever. But nature imposes intermittent fasting on them regularly. Mm. So the idea of going for many, many hours or even many days without food is a, an absolutely natural phenomenon. And it's not something that's bad for us. It's actually something that's very good for us. Two examples. One is that when you, if you had a factory and you wanted to do maintenance on the factory, you would close the factory down. Stop the machines, go in and do the maintenance. So the digestive system occasionally likes a break. You don't put anything in there for a while and then it has a chance to go in there and repair and clean and all that kind of stuff. The other side of this is that when you take a break from eating, your stomach shrinks back down to its normal size. Your stomach is normally the size of your fist. So if you look at that, that's about how much food you need in any one meal, right? Just the fist. But the trouble is, is that our stomachs are expandable because of feast and famine routines in nature. For example, we kill the wildebeest we're going to eat a lot. Or the fruits on the tree, we're going to eat a lot. Then the stomach expands out. Sometimes that even hurts a little. You have people, oh man, I ate too much, right? But the trouble is, is that for most people in the Western world, the stomach stays stretched like that. Mm. And so it takes a lot of food to give them a full feeling. Whereas intermittent fasting helps to bring that stomach back down. And so that the next meal they eat, they don't, they're not tempted to eat as much. So I'm a big, big fan of intermittent fasting and long-term fasting. I think it's incredibly healthy. And there's one other reason, which is fascinating. We know we burn sugar. Yeah. We know we burn fat. What most people don't know is that we also burn protein. When we're in a really stressful situation, for example, fasting, our body will actually switch to burning protein, but our body is so smart. I don't want to burn my protein. I'm going to the gym to build. I don't want to burn my... No, the body (laughs) is smart. Just like a lion or a wild dog or a hyena takes out the weakest antelope. When your body burns protein as a fuel source, apparently it burns the oldest, weakest, and most diseased proteins first. So oh, wow. Fact, a process. Wow. Intermittent fasting sounds so healthy and so great for you. I'm definitely going to give that a shot. Thank you so much for all your insight and all your you know knowledge in terms of wild fit and everything that you've learned. Let's move on to public speaking. Now, from my understanding, you didn't just learn about diet and, and things from the Bushmen. You also learned about the importance of stories. And they taught you a lot about stories. And I would love to hear why stories are so important to humans and why we absolutely love to always hear a good story. Let's talk about learning. I think this is where it really comes in. It's the very, very best way for a human to learn anything is to do it. You you just sit them down and make them do it. And then they they develop the neural pathways of what we call muscle memory and and they do it. The trouble is, though, if you're a young male Bushman, you know, you're eight years old. You can't do it. You can't go hunting. It would be dangerous. Like you just, you wouldn't be able to keep up. There's big big animals. You wouldn't be able to do it. So what are we going to do to make sure that you know how to do it before you have to do it? We can't rely on the best learning method. So we're going to have to fall on the second best learning method. And the second best learning method is storytelling. And it probably has been for as long as we've had language. And we've had fire for probably 2 million years. I'm going to guess there's been some form of storytelling going on around that fire for at least that long. And so- when, when, when we hear a story, what's really fascinating about our nervous system is, is that our nervous system actually can't tell the difference sometimes between fantasy and reality. Here's an example. If I were to say to you right now, you have to salivate right now. You've got to salivate. You can't. You, you, you can't <laughs> or if I said to you, you got to make your heart beat faster right now. You can't. There are certain things that are not consciously within your control. If I told you to breathe faster, you could. That's consciously in your control. But is it conceivable? Is it possible that I could tell you a story that would make you salivate? Yeah. Or a story that would, that would make your heart race and your skin flush, right? So a story can speak directly to the nervous system. And so as these young kids were sitting around the fire hearing the stories, they were developing, quote, muscle memory before they ever went out on a hunt. That has been the predominant learning methodology of humans for hundreds of thousands of years. And so as a consequence today, we enjoy story. Mm. When you go and see somebody speaking on stage and they lecture, you leave the room. Even if you don't get up and leave the room, you pick up and look at LinkedIn and Facebook, right? Whereas when there's somebody up on the stage, they're telling stories. If they're good at it, if the story's good, you're in all the way. 
And that's mm-hmm. because for millions of years, stories have been the primary communication system or operating system of the brain. Yeah. I just want to say that Eric is one of the best public speakers that I've ever witnessed in my life. That's actually how I found him. I was just trying to brush up on my own speaking abilities and found him on YouTube and was like, I have to get this guy on my show. He's amazing. And you're very talented at telling stories. I felt like I was there with you when you were on stage. It was amazing. And I want to know, how can we improve our own storytelling abilities? So I've had so many experiences in my life. I almost had a show on MTV. I've done a million things, but I feel like I'm not that great at telling my own story. So is there a way to like have an arsenal of your own stories and be prepared to say them when the time is is right? Yeah, absolutely. You've touched on a number of different issues there. One issue is answered by what we call a story journal. At Speaker Nation, where we teach public speaking and coach people in public speaking, one of the things that we teach all of our clients to have is a story journal. So what that means is whenever something happens in your life, you open up a page of your journal and you just take notes about it. You don't write the whole story out, and I'll I'll come to that in a minute, but you just take down some bullet points. You go, oh, yeah, there was the time that this happened, and I was in Paris, and blah, 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 and you just write down some bullet points. And I often like to make a note in the top corner roughly how long I think it takes to tell that story. And then in the bottom of the page, I like to make a note about like tags. We'd call them hashtags today, like what the topics of that story are, sales or, or influence or rapport or mountain climbing or whatever they might be. And what that means now is let's say you ask me, you book me to come and speak at some conference. I can take out my story journal and I can just leaf through it and just the bottom of the page and I can find all, like say you asked me to speak for 30 minutes on sales. I just go brr, sales, brr, sales and pick all my sales stories. Now, of course, I'm using a very old school methodology here because the truth is I teach people to do it that way first, and then I show them how to put it in Evernote or OneNote because it's even better. Yeah. So having a bank of stories, and by the way, do you ever plan to write a book? I hope so, and then probably in a couple of years. Imagine how valuable it would be for you to totally. a story journal. Yeah. It, it's, a story journal is the ultimate, the ultimate weapon for a speaker or author to really co- coalesce their thoughts. Do not trust your memory. You're young enough that you probably still have the arrogance of my memory works all the time. But I, as you get older, it's not, even, it's not even that your memory gets worse. It's that you begin to realize there's so much information in there that you can't always recall it when you need it in that moment. Totally. And bam, all of a sudden you have a story journal and you're able to, oh, I remember that story. So that's one, that's one very useful tool to have. The reason I say not to write them out is mm-hmm. I can always tell the speakers that write their stories out because mm. they sound like they're remembering the words rather than remembering the experience. Mm. And so I, I don't ever recommend writing out your speeches. I don't recommend writing out your talks or your stories. You bullet point them out. So you just have this, the important issues detailed so that you can remind yourself. And then every time you tell the story, you tell it fresh from experience, not trying to memorize the words. And by the way, I mean, this is just straight common sense. All these people want to use notes when they walk up on stage. Yeah. Think about this. If you are remembering the stories and you're planning to tell four stories, there's four things you need to remember. If you're going to try and memorize the words, that's like 4,000 things you need to remember. Mm. Why would we do that? Yeah. Now, the other thing you brought up is the actual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And storytelling, you know, I guess there's two sides to it. It's like on one level, some people are nervous of it or they're, or they're you know, they have a little stage fright or, or a lot of stage fright about walking up in front of an audience. And that's one of my favorite things to help people with because it can be done. You can get rid of it in 40 minutes. Like, bam, it's gone. You never have to feel that way again. Mm-hmm. I know because I used to be so terrified by the public speaking that I wouldn't be able to eat for days before I had to do a talk. It was awful. Mm. And today I have zero nerves about that at all. And I know how to help people with that. One of the clues that I can offer you about that is that, again, coming back to the idea that your unconscious mind can't really tell the difference between fantasy and reality. Well, what happens for a lot of people is they get invited to do a talk and they immediately start imagining it going badly. Well, no wonder you get nervous, right? Yeah. If you decide to fantasize about it going really, really well, That will help a great deal. There's more to it than that, but that would help a great deal. When it gets into the actual storytelling, the best thing I can tell you is this. Details make a story. So if I share with you, let me give it to you this way. Okay, so three weeks ago, I'm in the bush with all my friends. Now, at a high level, I might tell you this. I'm in the bush with all my friends. We're visiting with the Hadza Bushmen. We're traveling by four by four, and I have to leave the bush to take some of their friends out because they're only with a week. And then I have to pick up two of my friends who are coming with me to spend a week with the Bushmen embedded with with the film crew. That's Mm -hmm. not storytelling. That's setting the scene. That's called an establishment shot. The point where I go, where I want to drop into storytelling is I go, and you know, it's crazy. We got to Lake Minyara and I don't know what happened, but I just started having this pain in my stomach. And I thought, you know what? 
I know that that thing, that, that soup we had the other night had milk in it. And I'm having a reaction. I know it. And I start, but then that night, the pain is so severe that I cannot sleep. A friend of mine is like making hot tea for me, taking care of me. And then that night she makes me promise, promise that I'll talk to the doctor in the morning. And I, I wasn't going to, because it's just a gut pain. Why would I talk to the doctor? Why would I bother? But in the morning I had promised, I keep my promise. I went and talked to the doctor and he did a little abdominal exam. And immediately he's like, you have appendicitis. We got to go get your CT scan. You have to have surgery. So you see the difference between like at the high level, you're describing the situation, but yeah. at the low level, you're getting into the pain I felt and the facial expressions and the description and the conversation. A story that has the fleshed out details is real to the audience. And this is really important. If you ever want your audience to feel, mm -hmm. then you have to feel. Whatever you want the audience to feel, you have to feel. So if you're going to tell a story that you believe should trigger feelings of sadness in them, then you need to be sad. Yeah. If you want to trigger a feeling of joy and, and victory, then you need to feel those feelings of joy and victory. Totally. When you're telling them. Yeah. Let's talk about how to practice our stories. What's the best way to start practicing to ensure that, you know, we can use the skills that you just talked about? Well, you know, it's very simple. Find places to tell your stories, right? You know, and, <laughs> and that can be anything from the, the dining room table with your friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, to going out to organizations like Toastmasters that have speaking clubs or, uh, you know, Story Slam. You know, there are places where you can go and practice storytelling. And I think that's a great way to do it. Yeah, I'll be clear. I'm a big fan of Toastmasters. I think it's a great organization. I, I, it's not a style of public speaking that I really recommend if somebody wants to become a real influencer or a real professional speaker. But it's a fabulous place to go and get practice and learn their rules and figure out who you are yeah. and, and to get people to tell stories and get feedback. Also, you know, like retirement homes and nursing homes and stuff like that. Like you go on a vacation. Let's say you go off to Egypt and take a bunch of pictures. Contact the local nursing home. Guys, I'd love to come and I'd love to just give a presentation on my trip to Egypt. Guys, like everybody, please, I hope you'll all do this if you really want to get some practice because those are those people are sitting there, not a lot of activity in their life. And if you walk in there and share your slides and your stories with them, you're getting practice and they're getting this incredible, vicarious experience for you. So yeah, I think there's lots of great ways to practice. Totally, and also social media. Like, look at where what we're doing right now. I can hop on LinkedIn Live and start talking, or I have like selfie videos. That's how I've like slowly improved the way that I speak over the years, for sure. And even getting on podcast interviews. Not everybody has like you know a list guests like Young and Profiting Podcast, but you know you could get different speaking gigs. So speaking of that, how do you prepare for something like a speaking gig, or even for a podcast like this? How do you prepare? There's a number of different things in preparation. The one thing that, that, that I do and that we, that we share with all our clients is developing a list of strategic objectives. So most speakers go on stage with like one or two main objectives. Sometimes it's just to survive. Like I just want to be alive at the end of this. And yeah. sometimes they go out there and they, you know, they have content they want to share or, or they have something they want to sell. You know, they, they, there's usually a primary objective. Whenever I am doing something, I have a variety of different objectives. And there's the primary one. So, yes, maybe I'm speaking about WildFit at a big business conference in Germany. And my, my main objective is to stimulate dietary change in those people. My secondary objective is to maybe get them to come and do our 90-day program or our 14-day reset program or something to get them started. Mm -hmm. But then I'll have a list of other objectives. Like, for example, here's something that happened to me around podcasting. For a long time, I used to get it. I'd get, I'd get requests. Like, people go, can you come to my podcast? And then about... Three years ago, I just stopped getting requests. It was the weirdest thing. They, they stopped coming into the website. I just stopped getting, like, I still got some, but they went way down. And you know what it was? Uh, Mind Valley had blown me up on YouTube, and people became afraid to ask. Mm. It was the weirdest thing. They just, they were like, oh, no, he's probably too busy. He would never say yes. And so they wouldn't come up to me at the event and ask, and they wouldn't even, like. So then I started dropping stories into my talks about how. So I did this podcast interview with this one time. Like, here's a good example. In the middle of the whole Me Too thing, I got this interview. I got this interview request from this woman. And I'd done one very short podcast with her a year before. So she wanted to do a proper, like, I think an hour or 90 minute follow-up. And because mm -hmm. the first one had gone really well. So then I followed the address where, at the, where I'm speaking at a big event in, in Sardinia, Italy. And we're at this resort. And I follow the instructions to go to the podcast. And it, it, I realized it's in her suite. Mm. She wanted me to come alone into her suite and do this podcast. This is, you want to know what it's like to be a, 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 a guy these days? These are the things you have to think about because I'm about to go into the suite. and then it's a, So you know what I did is I turned my phone on record 
inside me so I could record everything that happened in this week. <laughs> I don't know this story. Yeah. Now, I, I share this story as an example of, hey, you know, we have to think about these things these days. But the way I told the story made sure the audience knew that I'm open to doing podcasts. And it's, every time I do that, I get all these podcast requests. Same thing will happen now, I bet. You'll have, you know, a bunch of your listeners go, Eric's approachable for podcasts, and then they'll come. So when you're getting ready to do a podcast or when you're getting ready to do a talk on stage, you should be thinking about all the little strategic objectives you have. Are you looking for a book deal? Maybe you should mention you're working on a book. Yeah. Are you interested in doing TV appearances? Maybe you should talk about how you've done TV appearances and how well they've gone so people in the audience, producers, editors, showrunners, know that you're good and that you're open to it. Yeah. I love that advice. Thank you for sharing. So a question that we ask all of our listeners on our show is, what is your secret to profiting in life? You know, I think that my secret really is recognizing that you have this one life and that on one level, you should take it really bloody seriously. But what that means is you should have fun. Here's my example for you on this is that there's all this like, are there, is there an afterlife? Is there reincarnation? Do we go to heaven? Do we go to hell? Like what, what's next after we die? I don't care. I don't care. I draw parentheses around this experience and I'm here to have as much fun and as much impact with this experience and to help everybody around me have the least amount of pain and the most amount of fun that they can. That's my deal. That's what I'm here to do. And I don't care what happens outside the parenthetical experience that I'm having now. There may have been a forelife. There may be an afterlife. It doesn't seem to matter. What seems to matter is that I want to be the best possible version of me in this one. The way I can describe this is you're a bit young for this, but in the old days, we would walk into a video arcade and put a quarter in the machine and then we play the game. Mm-hmm. And if your first guy, you know, you get your three men, right? The way the typical video game works, you get your three guys. If your first one didn't go very well, you still played the second and third one. But then video game consoles came out. And what happened now is a kid would start the game. And if they didn't do so well on the first man, they'd suicide the game. <laughs> Wouldn't they? They'd yeah. end the game and start over again. Their suicide rates have gone up by 30% in the last 20 years in real world. And that's because we're in this bizarre place of behavioral drugs influencing us and our food system being broken and all that kind of stuff. And, and frankly, I, I believe that the best way for us to profit in this life is to recognize that every one of us has a primary purpose. And that primary purpose is to enjoy ourselves and have fun. Yes, you might have missions. You might want to end starvation over here and get plastics out of the ocean over there. And I want you to have those missions, but I want you to also have fun and enjoy yourself. Yeah. That's a great reminder. And I know a lot of my listeners are such hard workers and we're working all the time to improve ourselves, but it's very important, as Eric said, is to have fun and enjoy your life. Where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do? Well, my primary website is www.eric.ee. And I'm on Facebook, of course, and I personally manage my own Instagram. So I'm, if, if you write to me, I'm there. I, I, don't reply, I can't always reply immediately, but it's definitely me. Instagram is the best way to go. And it's awesome. just my name, Eric Amazing. And I'll stick all his links in our show notes. Thank you, Eric. This was such a great conversation. Hey, thanks very much for having me. It's a real treat to be on a podcast that's researched and fun and engaging. And I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Of course. Thanks for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. Follow Yap on Instagram at Young and Profiting and check us out at youngandprofiting.com. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to write us a review or comment on your favorite platform. Reviews are the number one way to thank us, especially if you write a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn. Just search for my name, Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Yap team. As always, this is Hala signing off.